This is the Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. With the Reserve Bank raising the official cash rate to 3%, New Zealand's housing market looks set to cool even more throughout the remainder of 2022. We catch up with CoreLogic's Head of Research, Nick Goodall, to discuss all things property. Where is the market looking softest? And which regions are holding up the best? Is the housing shortage putting a floor under house price falls? And are construction costs really as high as some reports are suggesting? In this wide-ranging conversation, Nick and our Chief Investment Officer, James Gregor, try to take the current temperature of the New Zealand housing market. Yes, I think from my perspective, you know, we're starting to talk about now, you know, what are the factors and how the different types of buyers or potential buyers, how their behaviour might change and what's influencing their behaviour and their buyer options to then come back into the market to create some demand to start to turn around the slowdown, whether it's a plateau or a growth back out of the market. So that's very much the way we're talking about things now. As you say, you know, the downturn is, is firmly entrenched. When we're doing our market updates these days, I pretty much gloss over the first part of our section, which is usually what's happening with sales volumes. We know they're 30 odd percent down year on year. You know, what's happening with values? We know that they've, they've turned around. You know, the peak of the market was about November last year and things have come back from there, especially in places like Auckland and Wellington. We know all buyers have been affected by the overall, you know, greater regulation in the market. So that's changed the situation too. And then, and then, you know, you, and we're looking at the listings as well. Of course, listings are up now, but not because more people are listing their properties, simply because properties aren't selling at the other end of the pipeline. So that's kind of the opening game of these days where we go, we're going to brush over all those main factors. Most people know those. And let's really focus on how this market might change again in the future, depending on buyer behaviour and all the things that influence them. So that's kind of the way we're going at the moment. And I think I, I totally agree. Let's not let's not dwell too much on the um on the headlines because I think we're all um, pretty au fait with them. But interesting point around just the 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 day to day state of of some of those figures. So when 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 have we seen this before, where listings are increasing and not because everybody's trying to sell their properties? This houses are volume sales volumes are down thirty percent, so you're just going to get that build up of of stock. I guess the next sensible thing to take from that is prices have to come off if people want to start selling their property. Is that is that what we're seeing? Are we seeing people list and then prices start coming down as the as the listing takes longer and longer to clear, or uh, uh, is there a bit of realism in the prices now that they're starting to be listed at prices that uh, are generally considered lower? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both actually, where you are seeing those people that listed their property, if they do want to sell, they are having to you know take that lower price. And there's no doubt that anyone that is out there as a buyer are trying their luck to try and get the cheapest price possible. And the, the amount of bargain hunters out there are many. Um, but you know, if the, if the seller, the vendor doesn't actually have to sell because they haven't had a changing financial situation or they haven't already bought another property, we are finding what they'll do is just not sell it and they might even put it into the rental market. So you know, there's been a bit of that as well. And so we have started to see a lift in rental listings um, recently. And that's another one that's really interesting right now when you think of the investor market and what's happening there. And we are starting to see prices from a rental price start to come back as well, which is now starting to really make investors start to think, you know, can I afford to hold this property any longer? Or am I better to sell it off if I can't, you know, keep giving the rents that I need to, to cover all my increased costs of which, you know, increasing interest costs are, of course, a big part of that. So it's a really intriguing market. And I can't even remember a time when we've seen it like this. 
you know, even if you think back to the global financial crisis, you know, almost 15 years ago now, the situation was very, very different. We're still looking back to see how the market performed through then, but very, very different with credit, you know, a real problem back then, whereas it's not now, it's just harder to get and cost you a bit more, but the banks still have the money available. So yeah, very different situation. We do try and get the historical comparison, um, but some of those factors are very different right now than you know, any time I've sort of seen the last 10 or 15 years. So maybe we should start with a bit of crystal ball gazing, uh, which is always dangerous in, in our fields. But how, how do you see things playing out as we stand at the moment in, in the market? And perhaps we can touch Resi, but also, you know, some of those other parts of the market as well. Yeah, I mean, we'll focus mostly on Resi so far and, and generally will throughout today's call, um, unless we specifically say, I suppose. The other thing obviously here is just to you know, give the old caveat that, of course, this is generalised advice and we do have expectations of where things will go, but there's many things that could influence how that might change in the future. Our, our position still remains that the trend we've seen since about November, December last year will likely continue for the rest of this year as long as OCR and interest rates continue to increase. So we think that the greatest constraint on the market right now really is affordability. People that want to buy either cannot afford to borrow the amount of money they could nine or 10 months ago, or they're unwilling to borrow that amount of money as well. And that's really impacted by our increasing interest rates, you know, including serviceability interest rates, of course, as well, which are now in the seven or 8% mark. You just cannot borrow the same amount of money that you used to be able to. So you can't pay those prices that property's got to. And until that kind of changes, until we stop seeing that upward flow and upward pressure on interest rates, we don't think that trend is likely to change too dramatically. So on that, I suppose, then you'd say, well, that trend that we've seen with prices down about 10% nationwide from peak in November, then you'd say that's likely, that trend is likely to continue. So we will see that, that drop in value of about, you know, half a percent to a percent for the rest of this year until we start to see interest rates not increase anymore. And I know we have seen some downward pressure on interest rates because wholesale rates have come down. But with the OCR still tipped to increase and, of course, increasing last week, we still think that those interest rates have a little bit further to run before they truly peak out and then maybe plateau before, maybe even dropping um, at some stage in 2023. So for us, it's all about interest rates. It's all about affordability. Until that situation changes, the recent trend is likely to continue. How has that changed from when when we were talking to not just you, but the, the market expectations was for, for a, definitely a slowdown, I think the the, the the upward trajectory of the market in 2020, early 2021 was um, unsustainable. But what's changed to, to change the trajectory to be, you know, down 10% now and, and perhaps, you know, continual, um, continue with that theme as interest rates increase? Because I, I guess that there was an expectation that interest rates were going to increase at some point. So, have you seen a change in the dynamics of the market to cause the 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 ten percent from from where we've been since November? Yeah, I think there's other regulation as well. Of course, we know that the low to value ratio restrictions tightened up to their tightest ever position on the first of November last year, and so that was that changed back then was that dropping the requirement or the allowance for owner occupiers to get a loan with less than a 20% deposit. There used to be 20% speed limit. If people could have that, um, could, could get that loan without 20% or less than 20% deposit, now it's dropped to 10% of owner-occupiers can get that. And that's added to investors where only 5% of investors can get a mortgage with less than 40% 
deposit or equity. So I think when you look at those loan-to-value ratio restrictions, they are the tightest they've ever been. And that really kicked on the 1st of November when that owner-occupier change came in. Of course, we did also have the triple CFA changes come on the 1st of December. You know, really extra scrutinization on um, people's expenses. And it's been acknowledged, of course, since then, and they've probably gone too far. It was designed more for the you know, payday lender and, and short-term loan market, and really had affected the, the mortgage market more so than anyone probably wanted or expected. And so we've seen some minor tweaks to that already. There's some more changes forecast for March last year, uh, next year, sorry that will start to you know, loosen those a little bit as well. But when you add those two things, as well as all the regulation that's hit investors as well, and that certainly put a cap on demand from an investor's perspective with you know, the bright line test being extended, we've got you know, not being able to write off your interest costs anymore, we've got the healthy home standards increasing your costs, you know, there's increased tenant um, you know, laws which, which improve the quality situation for tenants. So I think that all, these, all this regulation has really come to pass in restricting demand at the same time, we shouldn't underestimate the impact of increasing interest rates themselves on just limiting the amount that people can borrow to. So you put all those factors in there, demand has reduced, that has ended up with you know more supply holding on longer too. And so then you've got the, the simple economic situation of reduced demand, more supply, and anyone trying to sell simply cannot get the price they previously wanted or their neighbours sold for, having to accept a lower price. And so you've seen this gradual downturn. But I suppose the one thing I'd note is that you know, it has still been relatively gradual. We still aren't really calling it a crash. You can maybe start to call it a crash, I suppose, when you see it continue at this rate for a long period of time. But the rate of fall has been pretty manageable and consistent. And I think the key reason for that is that no one's forced to sell yet. You know, there aren't many people, there'll be some people in a financial situations change, but with unemployment so low and a very strong and tight labour market, most people that want to sell or list in their property don't have to sell don't have to accept that price that bargain hunter is offering. And so they end up, you know, holding on or accepting a slightly lower price, but not as much as maybe, you know, would really see values fall at a faster rate. So yeah, it's an interesting one, but not not quite in the panic territory yet either. That's a interesting point, actually. When when you talk about markets down 10%, is that do you calculate that off actual sales or do you calculate that on average listing prices? Yeah, no, it's, it's off actual sales. And it's a really good point because I've talked to agents and they go, oh, you know, in these places, the heart, you know, parts of South Auckland, let's say prices are 20% below where they were in, in, say, November. But of course, their point is someone tried to sell their property for 20% or tried to sell their property and they couldn't get a price that was 20% below where it would have been in November. But of course, they never sold it. So, you know, you go, well, the market is not actually meeting itself. So generally, you can't say the market's fallen 20%. You can actually argue it's fallen more than that because, you know, they couldn't find a buyer at that level or they weren't willing to take that price. But the fact is we have to take prices that have been accepted. That's where the market has actually met between a seller and a buyer. And so that's the only data that we can use, unfortunately. But, yeah, I take the point that there are some that you go, well, I couldn't sell this for 20% less than what it was worth in November. So the market's fallen further than that. But I suppose the point is, if they don't have to sell it, they'll hold on, hope that the market comes back at some stage, and then the eventual drop won't actually get that far. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question and one that's, you know, could get you debating for hours in terms of how the data's done and managed and, and uh, the usefulness of each different types of data set too. Yeah, I guess I guess in, in reality, though, if you're not a forced seller that, and, and there's no nobody wanting to buy the house doesn't mean to say the house has necessarily fallen by that amount and uh, yeah, yeah I, I think it's a um 
there's was it statistics it's like lies and statistics or whatever the quote is lies lies and statistics Statist- yeah, yeah. The one. but it, but i i guess what, what there is uh, evidence of is uh, is a slowdown um and we have seen because of sales down 10 percent. so that's pretty robust data what do we need to see um to go to your sort of we haven't seen a crash perhaps we've seen a gradual decline uh, do you think it's going to be from here or interest rate sensitive? Um, because the, the likelihood of a government wanting to do anything more to slow a housing market that's already down 10% when you were sort of 18 months out from election or even, even less than that probably isn't, um, something that we're, we're likely to see. Is, is that really what you're tracking out as an interest rate story? I think uh, in terms of the likelihood of where things go in the future, interest rates will probably have the, the greatest influence. The other thing, though, is what, there could be some external influences. And our point has always been, you know, since last year probably, is that it all depends on how the labour market holds up. Um, and if we did see a lift in unemployment, if there was some sort of economic shock and the government weren't able or willing to support to keep people in jobs like they have been through the pandemic, of course, which has probably kept many businesses afloat when otherwise they might not even keep people in jobs. Um, yeah, if we did see that massive shock and unemployment rise above what anyone's expecting, then you might see the, the values start to fall away at a greater rate because simply people will not be able to keep up with their mortgage payments and have to accept any price that's out there. Whereas right now, we still believe that most people, you know, because of, again, you talk about regulation, most people have, a, have had some sort of equity in their property because they've used a 20% deposit. They've been tested at higher interest rates when they've got their mortgage, even if they entered towards that peak at the end of last year. And we know from talking to brokers as well, that even throughout last year, as we were going in this downward interest rate environment, many people up to half, you know, from estimations, would still keep their payments as if they were paying on the higher interest rate. So if you were on a 4.5% interest rate, you were refixing at 3%, say, in the start or middle of last year, you'd actually keep paying your mortgages if you're on that higher rate anyway, which does create that buffer when you go back up. And that's why we don't think the interest rate shock is maybe as bad as it seems or could be as bad as it seems because many people have protected themselves from this, this shock. And, of course, the, the situation, the the um, regulation and, and market has also protected them with LVR requirements, with um, serviceability testing as well, that should sort of protect things on the way up for interest rates or on the way down for house prices too. And I think generally we know behaviour for people is to say, well, if in doubt, you know, when you're paying more into your mortgage, you'll adjust your discretionary spend as opposed to go, I simply can't afford my mortgage, I'm going to go sell it and, you know, and then I have to move into a flat or I'm going to have to go renting or, you know, have to buy a cheaper house. Like that's simply something that will happen if you're more desperate and that's unlikely to occur unless you lose your job or lose a large proportion of your income. So I think the key swing factor here really is the labour market. And most people's forecast, it is very tight at the moment. We know there's strong competition for labour, um, not just here, not just only here in New Zealand, but in Australia too. And we're seeing negative migration now as well, where more people are moving overseas either to do their OE or to go and work for greater wages in Australia too, which will just continue to see that tight labour market um, strong lift in wages. But again, as long as people keep their job, we, we do think that will be, you know, it's pretty much like a, a fundamental or a, keep that sort of foundation underneath the market, which will see values, you know, potentially fall away further, but not fall away at a rate that's, you know, really significant or someone would call a crash. On the supply side, do we, despite, despite prices coming off, do we still have a shortage of housing in some areas like Auckland, like Wellington? Yeah, we think the shortage still exists. You know, there's been such a deficit created over the last you know, 15 years at least. 
Um, Auckland has certainly gone some way to, to fixing that. Uh, you look at you know the number of consents, especially for smaller type dwellings, so the units and flats and townhouses and apartments. Um, you know, since the unitary plan came in in 2018, I believe. So that's certainly gone some way to improving the situation in Auckland, but we still think there's some way of actually having you know the right number of houses in the right locations at the right price for the amount of people that live in Auckland itself. The rest of the country too, you have strong consenting figures for the last wee while, but still nothing on you know what most of them will need to keep up with population growth. So we don't think that, like I say, from a the other thing that could cause a crash would be you have too many properties for the amount of people that want to live in those houses. We think we're a long way off that and. One of the comparisons we make for a place like Auckland, of course, massive city, international city, I think many people would agree, is when you compare that to similar international cities, and the easiest one is, of course, to look across the ditch to Sydney. And we did a, um, a podcast, actually, which will be released shortly to market with our Australian counterparts, and really interesting talking to them. They've been building more units than single standalone dwellings in New South Wales since 1995. In Auckland, we've been building more units, and that's including like, like townhouses and apartments and things, smaller type dwellings than houses for less than two years. So it just goes to show, you know, that we have had this restriction on ability to use, you know, the land properly, um, restricting to build up more so than out. We haven't had the same investment in infrastructure to build um, to build in the right places where people want to live, as I say, where it's affordable and where amenities are, like they have in, in bigger cities around the world. Um, and so I think we still have some way to go till we can actually get to a point where we go, there's a chance that we're oversupplied in Auckland and that might see prices fall away at a faster rate. So I think with no, no risk of that, Auckland has probably seen the greatest growth in, in consents and dwellings hitting the market. Um, and even that's too far away. So I think for the rest of the country, there's certainly no concern about that either. Interesting conversation you had with your Aussie counterparts. What what was sort of the outcome of that discussion in, in the sense of is there has their property market been a little bit less frothy than ours because of that fact that they have a lot of build within that sort of high-density type housing? To a degree, um, and certainly when you look at some of the centre city um, apartment markets in the likes of Sydney, um, Brisbane, Melbourne, they were actually seeing falls in that value and they were seeing settlement risk where people were putting deposits on apartments. At the time it would go to settle, it was worth less than what they paid, so they would just walk away from their deposit. And this was happening pre-pandemic. So they already had potential oversupply back then. Still got a very strong construction industry too. Um, they have seen the same growth through the pandemic as well. Obviously money was flowing freely and the support from government was massive as well. So, you know, they have had similar things, but what we've seen right now, and the, mostly the reason for doing the podcast actually, was because Australia is looking to New Zealand. You know, we've been tightening monetary policy sooner. And so we've seen interest rates rise faster and, and earlier than Australia and many other parts of the world, by the way, too, that they're actually looking here. And I remember saying to them, it would have been six months ago, just look at what we were saying three months ago and you guys take that commentary and you'll be you'll be ahead of the market. You know, your crystal ball will be perfect. So it was very much about what are we seeing here and what lessons can the Aussies learn from what's happening in New Zealand because we do seem to be a little bit ahead of the game than them and we are seeing their market follow ours by about a three or four month delay. So that was the really, really interesting thing. Um, but it's more interesting for them than it is for us because they're learning from us at this stage, which is probably pretty unique. It doesn't happen very often. They're a little bit different in terms of their mortgage and their fixing, aren't they? Because are they are they generally more floating rate than than we are with our sort of our popular two year fixed type mortgages? They are, yeah. I mean, it's another intriguing one, and you sort of go, how is this? 
you know, how does this take place when we're such similar nations and, and all the same banks essentially operate as well? But yeah, it's very much based on pricing and floating is the way to go in Australia. Whereas, yeah, we do tend to go for the certainty and the cheaper pricing of fixed in New Zealand. And so it does leave them a more exposed to increasing interest rates. Whereas we're not quite as exposed because we lock in for these rates for, you know, like I say, a year or two or, or longer right now, which um, means that we do get that slower impact of changes to the official cash rate, which they don't quite have in Australia. And as soon as they see a lift in the OCR, many of those people um, will, will feel the effects immediately. Although I think um, from talking to them, their favour their favor towards uh, floating rates has slightly diminished in the last wee while as those fixed rates have come down and people have jumped on for a bit of certainty thinking that, you know, rates will start to increase. So, so get those lower rates while you can and lock them in. So it has drifted a little bit recently, but um, may start to change now again as well as we start to get these expectations of, you know, most countries around the world getting towards peak interest rate level as these official cash rates start to do their job and, and hopefully reining in um, this inflation, the inflationary pressure that's happening around the world. Good segue into inflation. Nick, when, when you think about inflation from a, your supermarket shop and all that, it's relatively simplistic to, to think about your effects on, on, the, on the home budget. But how, how does it affect housing? Because on, on one hand, I guess, housing and property is a, is a great inflation protector. On the other hand, you've got this inflation means higher interest rates. When you guys are doing your modelling around the effects of inflation on on pricing and supply, et cetera, how do you think about it overall? Yeah, look, I think that it, it obviously squeezes, you know, the amount of money that's required to go elsewhere. And so that does leave you less money. And you think about something like the triple CFA requirements, which are already tougher on your expenses, and now your expenses are all increasing because inflation is higher that means it is going to be harder again to get the same level of borrowing that you could have got in the less inflationary times um, or when interest rates weren't obviously as high as well. So I think that's the way it's impacting, that it is like another kick in the guts for how much you can borrow because you've got so much money going to other expenses. So your your available amount of money to, to you know, use to service a mortgage is reduced again. So I think that's probably the key um, influence on how it, how it affects the mortgage market and, and the flow on through the property market as well. Do you do much research on on build costs of, of new homes? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we've got our own index that measures that. So it's called the Cordell Construction Cost Index, the triple CI. It's released every quarter. And, um, you know, we've done a lot of research and, and we've got teams of people that are doing, um, you know, full research on actually what it's costing for each of the different pieces of material. And, and our Cordell team are really interesting to listen to because they talk about how there's, you know, a recipe of how you build a house. So there's a standard build type that we measure. And most recent data sort of had it increasing by about 7% per annum. Now, that's the overall cost to build, which takes into account labour cost, fees, um, as well as materials as well. So it's everything all in there at about 7% per annum. And I've had a bit of feedback from the market that it's not too far from the truth from people that are right there at the front line, of course, that, you know, these indices are not always perfect. But there are estimations of other ones being upwards of 15 to 20% as well, which Feedback from the market says that that's probably a little bit overcooking it as well. Um, but yeah, we do our own measures. And that's one that we look at and try and make as robust as possible. It's a pretty technical index, but it does get real data from what it costs you to buy those materials. Um, and it's measured every single well, month, really, and then put together as a quarterly index. Mm -hmm. And so we're, I guess bill costs, therefore, uh, um, you know, you can either 
buy a house or or buy some land that perhaps is a bit cheaper because I'm I'm guessing land values get hit the hardest in, in these sorts of environments. Um, yeah, land, land prices certainly being affected, um, but it also takes some time for those to flow through the market too. So when you think about the peak of the actual housing market like late last year, and the land prices take a little bit longer to adjust as well. That development space is obviously very interesting and certainly I think one of the greatest concerns for government and, and the broader market, I suppose, is what's happening in that development and construction space. You know, the government's been very clear about not wanting to see another bust cycle for the construction industry and doing everything they can to, to protect against that. There's been, you know, a few um, reports of, you know, these, these businesses going into liquidation, which are, of course, of concern. But most of the research we've been doing says that actually it's still not above a normal level. You'd see this sort of turnover of businesses in that industry in any normal time. And so there's, again, no reason to panic just yet. But, of course, the coverage of them has increased. And, um, you know, one person I spoke to talked about, um, you know, their analogy or their comparison was the dog attacks or something. There's statistics on, you know, if we talk about statistics, statistics again, Statistics on dog attacks in the UK are apparently pretty much consistent over time. You know, dog attacks happen the same every quarter, every year, but the coverage of dog statistics happens to ebb and flow up and down over time. And so it feels like there's certain times in the year or certain times in the decade where more dog attacks are happening. But if you look at the data, it actually tells you they're pretty consistent over time. It's just the coverage of them that changes. And the analogy there being, of course, relevant to the construction industry saying, well, are we just so hypersensitive and the media are now reporting every single liquidation, but actually it's no different to you know what it was last year, the year before, the year before that. And so the damage maybe isn't quite as great as what it could be expected to be or what people are feeling like it could be. The question then is, you know, maybe it's the size of some of these liquidated companies and things. So I'm not saying there's nothing to be worried about here. We certainly want to be really cautious of what's happening in this market. And again, the government are doing everything they can to put their feelers out and, and see what's going on in that market. But, you know, at the moment, we still don't think, you know, there's any more liquidations happening right now in that sector than there would be at any other normal time where businesses struggle with cash flow. You know, they are struggling to meet some of them. Badly run will be struggling to meet, um, you know, increasing interest rate costs, material costs hitting at the same time, haven't prepared for this, and that will start to affect their bottom line. Of course, the bad side of this is, you know, we start to see a lift in unemployment in that sector, and then we get this potential flow on as well to our broader economy. So certainly things to be aware of, but so far from the talks we've been having and from the investigation we've done, we don't think it's quite as bad as maybe some of the headlines led us to believe. That's that's a really interesting point because I'm, I'm sure I was guilty of that. You see these big high-profile media announcements, big write-ups in the paper. Actually, it's quite a risky sector when you're doing a development each each company can be just specific to one development. These things go bust all the time. Mm. And and it's just par for the cause. Someone else picks it up, finishes off the project. Uh, you know, you're not sitting there looking at all these unfinished projects thinking, you know, we, we live in a massive construction zone without without any of these houses being done. And so I guess the hyperbola does get a bit um bit frothy when when we see house house prices fall at the same time. And I think that, you know, there's a personal story in there most often as well, right? Like it's terrible reading about these first-home buyers who have struggled to get into the market. They've engaged with a developer and a construction firm and, and they, they're, you know, 80% of the way to being able to move into this house. They're already paying the mortgage for this construction loan that they've got. They're also still paying their rent somewhere and they're 80% complete and they can't move in. So I think, you know, emotionally, of course, we get invested in these stories as well because that's never a good thing. And, and I might make... 
I might be talking about it saying it's not a bad thing, but for those people invested in it, it's hugely massive, you know, and it's, it's a really important thing to be aware of. But is it broad enough to really be affecting the market um, to a great degree? That's the, that's what we're mostly focused on, of course, is the, the broader market impact of construction firms going under, not are there some people who have been terribly affected by that. And I think that's also important because that does start to hit confidence. And if first-home buyers or potential first-home buyers are reading these stories, they're nervous, they're not going to engage in that sector. And that's, of course, not good for the pipeline of new builds to come in the future either. So there are strong flow-ons from this, but it's really important, I think, to try and detach sometimes from a market commentator's perspective or a research perspective than those personal stories, of course, which it's, it's tough to read and tough to hear. And it, it's, it's real, but it's also not market-wide. It's generally around the edges and it's not um, you know, affecting the majority of people who are engaged in that sector either. So yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one and one that is, is ever-changing. Um, and as I said, we're certainly not going to be blasé about it. We're doing everything we can to keep on top of it, talk to the government, talk to construction industry. Um, I think my colleague, Calvin, might even be speaking this week um, at a master builders um, conference. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, him speaking there, being on a panel and getting the feedback from the market too as to what's going on that sector from the ground too. So we're always out there trying to find out more. Yeah, it's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes, but also you can get a bit too caught up and it's, it, um, it, it doesn't help when you're, you're making decisions on, on sad, but, you know, real specific stories. Hey, Nick, let's let's move to say talk about some of the regions. I know we've got listeners from all over the country, and often there's this focus on what's going on in Auckland, Wellington. I, I know uh, as the property prices strengthened uh, over the course of you know po- the post um, initial lockdown in 2020, you, you got a real strong uh, or not bounce back, but real strong price increase across the regions as I guess affordability and in the main centres meant people looked outside those main centres. Often when things go up fast, they, they, they can come off a bit faster. Is that what we're seeing at the moment? No, actually. Um, in terms of the, the value falls, the greatest value falls have been in Auckland and Wellington. Um, so I think especially these areas where there has probably been stronger levels of development too. So we talk about the impact of development. I think these areas where there's been so much land opened up or potential for development, these are some of the areas that are coming back the most as well. And that's certainly the case in, in parts of Wellington, especially lower and upper Hutt, uh, parts of Auckland as well, especially down in, in Manuko, but other areas of um, the Eastern Bays as well, where there's been a lot of development open up. And the regions are actually seem to be holding on okay. Um, certainly signs of that downturn starting to gather some speed in some of those areas too. But I think your point there about affordability has been one of the things that's led to some of the growth in these markets and will also be one of the factors that starts to influence where prices go in the future. And okay, um, I'm trying to think back to when we spoke to you guys last or maybe two times before, but we put together a report back in October last year where we were expecting that the market would definitely you know, go through a slowdown or downturn phase this year. And we started to look at it and say, well, what are the factors that could lead to some areas seeing a greater downturn than others? And we put this report out called the Regional Vulnerability Index, and we've updated the data behind that. We've been sort of releasing these and in, in more market updates. We will put a, probably an updated report together um, at some stage as well, but soon we've got the updated data and we start to see which areas have shifted more towards the most vulnerable end of the scale than the least vulnerable end of the scale. And I, I can give you some high-level summary on that. But I think that 
the key thing really has been that one of the major factors is affordability. And I think it's it's come through today's discussion quite often that we know affordability is one of the key constraints on the market because we know expenses are high, we know that interest rates are increasing, and we know that regulation has increased as well, that this is really what's squeezing the potential buyer and, and meaning that seller can't get that price they otherwise would have. And so those areas that have seen the greatest deterioration in affordability in the last two years are those that are probably most worst placed for greater value drops. And so when we look at that, there's other factors too. So um, we've got some external sources of data. We do have Centrix credit data to look at where people might be struggling to pay their mortgage back already or other debt as well. We've got demand data from TradeMe as well. We've got internal sources of data such as where have investors have been really active in the past that might not be able to be kept up with. And if investors do try and get out because they can't make those sums work, they might have to accept the lower price. So we've got all these factors we're sort of thrown into one index. The Regional Vulnerability Index, by the way, from October is downloadable from our website, so you can go and get that. As I say, we have updated the data, but it's not released to market yet, but you can get the high-level information from that. So we chuckle that together, put an index together, and essentially our summary says the Central North Island, Lower North Island, and parts of Hawke's Bay are the most vulnerable to greater falls. And then the South Island, particularly the Canterbury and Christchurch region, that's less vulnerable to greater drops as well. So it's very high level. We're not going to be able to get into the detail of all the different you know, council areas, but we do have every single 70 council areas on our index um, and looking at which areas are most vulnerable. And it certainly looks like those regions that have seen the greatest increase and now the greatest deterioration in affordability, they're the ones that are likely to see the greatest falls or, or fall for the longest period of time or that their recovery might take the longest too. And, and one of the things I mentioned at the start was we know that the global financial crisis downturn was very different to this one, but we've still looked back to that time to go, well, how did the downturn play out back then? And one of our, our key points has always been, well, almost anyone you talk to in the market knows that values in New Zealand, housing values fell 10% from peak to trough in the GFC. But not many people remember or recognise the fact that it actually took a full five years for values to get back to their peak value as at September, October 2007. And I suppose what we're trying to do there is say, yep, we acknowledge that the market's not the same right now and, and the factors aren't the same and it might play out differently. But when we have been through downturns in the past, recovery can actually be a lot longer, a bit of a slow grind. I'm not saying it's going to take five years to get back to that peak this time around, but it's certainly, you know, we're not expecting a, a significant bounce back, you know, over the next 10 or 12 months, like we, like, some people might think as demand comes back again. So again, we're just in that expectation that these areas might not be vulnerable to greater falls, but their, their recovery might take longer as well. So yeah, we certainly think those areas that are most stretched affordability-wise, they're the ones that set up worst this time around and certainly could take a while to come back to that that growth in the market. That time in 08 where we, we had a 10% drop and then takes five years, because I guess unemployment was a lot higher back then, is that part of the reason? So we actually saw people needing to sell houses and so there was a bit more downward pressure on it. Is that, is that the way to look at it? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, you think about, I think one of the key differences I'd make right now is that in the GFC, the banks were essentially the problem. You know, you think of all those mortgages that were going bust and, and those banks that were really struggling and being bailed out by, by the governments. Um, you know, they, they were the problem. This time around, the banks are still the solution. The banks are still well capitalised. They still have funds available. It's just harder to get because of regulation and it costs you more than it did, you know, when interest rates were at their lowest. 
The other key comparison, of course, is that the GFC, to try and stimulate the economy, because we did go into a, a proper recession, was that interest rates actually came down, which improved affordability. You know, prices came down of houses, interest rates went down, which actually improved affordability, but people lost their jobs, mortgagee sales were massive. I think you know, we, we, we tracked mortgagee sales, and I think the peak mortgagee sale um, over one quarter was 777 mortgagee sales in one quarter. I think it was either Q2 or Q3 of 2008, so a little bit after the peak of the market. Um, you know, this time around, we're literally coming off a low in Q1 this year where there were six mortgagee sales. Now, it did lift to 21 mortgagee sales in Q2 this year, but that 21 is still, you know, in the lowest five or six quarters from that, you know, 20-year period that we've been tracking. So, you know, we're nowhere near that situation. And that, as I say, mortgagee sales happen because people lose their job or their financial situation changes and they have to, you know, they basically have to sell their property because they don't get, have income to cover their mortgage at a, at a time where, you know, right now mortgages, mortgages um, payments are increasing. So, you know, there's a lot of differences there as well, but in one of those major ones, as you say, unemployment lifted, people couldn't afford their house, um, and so they had to sell, the bank forced them to, and they were, they were essentially, you know, mortgagee sales definitely don't achieve the same price that you do if you're selling to a normal market. And that forced those prices down um, at that time, which is very different to what's happening right now, which is very much an affordability situation as opposed to a, an, an increase in unemployment and forced sales ha- occurring and hitting the market. This is probably unfair because it was 2008, so you might not have this off the, on the top of your head, off the top of your head, but... Um, 771 mortgage sales. What would what would the what's the average? Uh, how, how many houses are sold during that year? And so, what is, is there a percentage that that is of of total sales? Because on one hand, like you say, horrible for the individuals involved. But 771 in a during the GFC doesn't actually sound that much. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, I think the lowest that sales got to in the GFC for one quarter was about 15,000 sales in a quarter. So if if we assume, which probably isn't fair, that um, you know those 777 happened at the time when the market was at its lowest and had the lowest amount of sales, 15,000, then it's still a pretty small proportion of sales. Um, I suppose it, it, the, the key thing though would be that those would still have a significant influence in terms of the price you're achieving and that would drag down say house price index and again we talk about confidence of the market when you can see some properties are going for x percent below um, where they were previously or below cv or below their value or whatever that definitely drags the rest of the market down so it's a good point it's not inconsequential number um, but it's certainly not like it's you know 20 or 50 percent of all sales or something going to mortgagee sale and just because I guess you're not in a mortgage sale doesn't mean to say you're not under pressure. And banks are actually quite good, I, I think, at at sort of helping people get get rid of a, you know, support the um the their clients and customers and and getting those mortgage payments through and and perhaps giving them a bit more time before they have to go down that track. Because I guess it's it's for a bank, it's not that nicer to put a a, a customer through that process anyway. Exactly right. Right. I don't think mortgagee sales benefit anyone really, um, except the bank, unless they really, really need the money, and they are they are literally forced themselves to get that money because they're in trouble. But again, the banks, you know, I think that they would have tried to work with their clients back then. They could probably, you know, they're probably even more inclined to do so now. And you know, the, again, I, I read some articles a week or two ago talking about, you know, all this talk about banks helping out their clients is rubbish because there's a few examples of people who, you know, are being forced to sell their home. And again, there are situations where this is going to occur, and the bank just has no other way 
um, depending on the person's situation, you know, their age, their job, um, now their income, all those things are going to be factors for the bank to sit there and say, look, you know, we need to try and, you know, sort this out. Um, there's going to be occasions where that doesn't work out for everybody. But in general, the bank will try and help you out and say, look, can we go, you know, extend the life of the mortgage, which reduces your mortgage payments? Can you go on to interest only for a short amount of time, which again reduces your mortgage payment so you can get through any short-term tough period? But I suppose from their perspective, if there's you know, no light at the end of the tunnel, that borrower looks like it's unlike their situation is not likely to change anytime soon, then they will go through that process of, of being forced to sell it by mortgagee sale. But again, they probably offer it to the person to say, you sell it, we need you to raise these funds do it on your own accord, um, but we're going to have to call in that money. But again, you know, 21 done in Q2, maybe it's going to start to lift this quarter, um, but, you know, certainly well done on where they were previously. And as a proportion of total sales, it's certainly very few and far between. And finally, Nick, when we think about going forward and, and uh, I mentioned at the start, election year, housing or the economy perhaps is, as Bill Clinton famously said, it's the economy, stupid. And if you have a falling house price going into an election, despite, I guess, despite some people or a, a lot more support of wanting housing to be affordable, especially as as um, as people look at their kids being unable to get into the market and, and things like that. But do you see any wholesale change in some of these regulations that are going on? you know, say interest offsetting and, and, and those sorts of things, or are these things here to stay and we're, we're likely to be um, sort of facing those sorts of pressures within the market, you know, going yeah, no, That's a great question. I think that most people would agree if national win, it's going to be more favourable for investment property to, to one degree or another. If Labor win again, then, you know, things will carry on in terms of the, the restriction on investment um, in property, because it has been, you know, the, the favour has certainly been switched towards those first home buyers. Then the question is, how much do you want to get into politics and believe you know, the, the politicians, when they say, oh, if we win, we're going to repeal some of these regulations which have come in in the past. And, you know, I, I certainly don't like to get too deep into the politics of it all and, and leave that to, um, you know, listeners themselves. But I did a really interesting um, forum. Uh, it was a while ago now, it would have been over a year ago, where the housing spokesperson for National was there, Nicola Willis at the time, and the housing spokesperson for ACT was there, Brooke Van Velden. And it was really interesting because it was an investment seminar, so they were appealing to investors and both of them obviously trying to, you know, cage their vote for, for future. And at the time, Brooke Van Velden said to Nicola Willis, um, you know, despite National saying they'd repeal standards, that every time we have a repeal regulation that's come in, um, in the past when they've said that, they've then won the election, they haven't actually ended up repealing anything. And... Nicola Willis didn't decline that and say it wasn't true. Now, maybe she didn't off the top of her head, so couldn't say. But I thought it was an interesting point that often these things, they talk about it, but then because once the regulation gets settled and it, and it kind of gets reaffirmed in the market, you don't necessarily need to make that change anyway. So that will be the interesting thing here is whether that national will strongly campaign on reversing some of this regulation that's come to market. And then if they do win, whether they follow through with that. Again, I'm not going to put a judgment on that. I think that that'll be depending on your own political bent as to where you sit with those type of arguments. But it's just an interesting one to, to take note of, I think, is that often these things, once they're entrenched, you don't need to reverse them. You can look at you know, other ways to, to favour certain things um, as opposed to necessarily repealing some of these things, which once they're in the market, they're doing a job. Do you really want to reverse them, which might cause prices to grow at a faster rate, which I think most people acknowledge 
have negatively affected many people in this country and wouldn't be a good thing either. So, yeah, don't want to get dragged down that political wormhole, but it'll soon be an intriguing one to see how it plays out next year, what's campaigned on, you know, who actually wins, and then what gets followed through with um, will be will be an interesting one to watch. And it will have some influence on the market. One of the things we certainly know is that in an election year, activity slows down as uncertainty creeps in. So the fact that it's looking like a, you know, it's going to actually be a race this time around, which it hasn't been, you know, a few times before, um, that certainly will create some intrigue in the market. And if in, if, in, if in doubt, it'll cause a slowdown in activity as people don't know what to expect. And then we'll see things change as we find out who wins and what that might mean for the housing market. So, yeah, at the very least, it'll be interesting. Yeah, these short election cycles make it sort of hapless in, in, in more longer-term asset classes because last election, was, and, and it didn't focus too much, it was more of a COVID election, but last election was all about, you know, house prices are, are too high and, and actually you got probably votes on the fact that you want to try and control that. It's funny how when, when things do start to fall and, and housing falls 10% all of a sudden, actually that's a, an election loser and it's all about trying to, to prop that up and, in the end, it's um, like you say, you know, let's not delve into outcomes, but but it will, it will certainly be a probably more front and centre around a weaker market if, if that's the case when we fast forward to next year's election. Nick, um, really appreciate all your comments this morning, and I, I guess over to you to I guess round out what what you sort of see perhaps for the rest of this year and. And for and how we can expect to see um, 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 prices track from here. You sort of mentioned the sort of trajectory lower you, in your career, and you've been doing this a, a while now. Uh, are you nervous about how things are tracking? And and I, and I know that you, you talk about the current trajectory being sort of one of uh, of um, steady steadiness, which I think is is a, a good way to describe it. Are you in a nervous frame of mind or are you thinking that, that the market's still pretty robust because of this unemployment? How, how do you think about things on a day-to-day basis when, you, when you're out doing your research, talking to people, um, you know, reviewing the market? Yeah, I think it, it comes down to what would arrest the fall in prices. And to me, it needs demand to come back um, stronger. And that is going to be influenced by things like affordability, um, you know, and that's tied to interest rates. So I think that's the key thing we're watching for. Or, you know, and, and investors, are they going to actually find some value in the market to come back to, you know? And so I think those are the key things we're watching for. And it's hard to paint a scenario that says either of those buyer groups are going to come back strong within the next, you know, four or five months towards the end of this year. And that's why I think we expect this slowdown to continue to play out the way it has for most of this year, for the rest of this year, and then it's really tied to what happens with interest rates. So I think that's the thing for me is to expect it to continue on, but we still believe, like you say, that nervousness isn't necessarily there. And there's a gradual correction, if you like, um, as prices come back down to a more sustainable level. You know, we know that that growth that occurred in that market, in this market the last two years up to November last year, was was crazy. You know, it was because there was free-flowing money, it was cheap as anything. You know, it was, you know, the sensible thing for people to pile in. You know, it was hard to argue with anybody doing so, um, except for obviously being cautious of the fact that, you know, protect yourself from when mortgage rates do start to rise again, because it will start to affect how much you can afford to, to pay towards your mortgage. So I think just recognising those times are over, 
It's a different market right now for anyone buying property in the next six or 12 months. You've got to be really cautious around your finances as well. And so I think for that reason, we don't expect demand to be you know, strong or super strong, which would cause growth in prices. But potentially that arrest in the fall of prices could come as those interest rates start to top out. But we don't also think that we're at the peak of the interest rate cycle just yet or interest rate, interest rate increasing cycle just yet. Um, we might be closer to that than the trough, certainly. And, you know, I've, I've seen in the last week or so have been talks about, you know, the market's bottoming out already. I think that's probably a little bit premature, um, simply because, again, affordability is still very stretched. Interest rates are still increasing despite, yep, strong com competition in that market. Banks are fighting hard for, you know, the mortgages that are out there, whether it's refinancing or those sales that are occurring. And that will see rates be relatively competitive. But because there's still increases to the OCR to come, uh, we do think that, you know, that demand won't come back strong anytime soon. And so, you know, those those falls will still continue for a little bit longer. We probably, we don't have an official um, value forecast here at CoreLogic. What we tend to do is look at everyone else's forecasts and then criticise theirs or otherwise. Um, perfect, perfect way to be. <laughs> exactly, that's right. We've got, a, we've got a sales volume forecast of how many transactions will occur, um, but not necessarily where values go to. But from a transaction perspective, look, we're expecting about 72,000 total residential sales this year. Um, that's down from about 98,000 last year. So it's a significant fall away in sales transactions. And I think that, you know, when many people talk about, oh, you know, fewer transactions occurring, how real estate agents gonna gonna fare with that? And the, the little violin comes out, of course, because no one seems to feel sorry for real estate agents. But I think we need to acknowledge the impact on a broader economy of that. You know, there's a number of industries which rely on transactions of housing for their sustainability or for their own profits. And, you know, from banking to insurance, to real estate, to moving companies, to, you know, telco utilities companies, when a, when a transaction occurs, all these decisions come up. So it does have a, a greater flow on to our broader economy too, which I think needs to be acknowledged. Um, and when it comes through to where values are likely to go to, I think we still sit in the, the realm of around about that 15% peak to trough, which is interesting when you put in that GFC context of 10%. Um, a greater fall this time around, but still relatively managed after a period of really strong growth, but certainly a correction more so than a crash. So I think that's what we're expecting, which would see values fall another 5% nationwide from where they've been. Um, but some areas, again, we need to acknowledge will fall further than others. And our vulnerability analysis does tell us that, yeah, those parts of North Island that saw the greatest deterioration of affordability, they're fearing the worst, um, whereas parts of the South Island, particularly Canterbury, won't fare too bad either. So. Yeah, there's, there's lots to take in there, I think. Um, but that's kind of the, the summary I'd give, I think, is that I expect this to happen for a little bit longer, but it's not a gr as grim a situation as maybe has been painted, even by ourselves, when you talk about you know some of the constraints on the market. Um, so, yeah, but like I say, all tied to unemployment, labour market, which still looks like it's relatively tight. Uh, people in a job have still got one. And as, as they do, they're likely to continue to pay their mortgage payments. And so that's that's obviously a good thing for those people and for our broader economy. You know, many people talk about our economy is just a housing market with, with bits tacked on. I think that's that's fair. And, um, and and so everything is tied to what happens in that market. And as long as people can keep paying their mortgage, that is generally a good thing for our economy. It, it's the, the, the really interesting thing about your wrap up there is we might actually start talking about yields rather than than value of property and and I know that's something that we don't talk about often it's what's the what's the sensible yield you should earn on a on a two bed apartment in Auckland or Palmerston North or 
or Queenstown or, or wherever you are. And, and because it's all been about what's the house price going to do. And now if we have something of a, um, not, you know, might not necessarily be up or down or, but, but, but yield starts becoming more important because that's what covers your, your interest rate costs and, and, and those sorts of things. And, and, and that's how we might start looking at property again. God forbid, given that's been a while since we thought about that. I think that's a it's a it's a great summary, and that's exactly what we're saying to investors. You know, if we do see a similar trajectory of housing values for the next wee while, and you look at the Reserve Bank house price forecast, it is sort of taking that you know real gradual recovery. It is more of a bathtub shape, and you know with with values not getting back to their peak for a wee while, then yeah, you do have to start buying on long term capital growth because it's likely prices will start to grow again in the future. They'll keep in line with wages, which will likely increase over the future as well. Um, but long-term capital growth and yield, nothing on that short-term growth. You know, you bought in the last couple of years, any investor buying was happy enough because they knew that within a couple of months, the value of that asset was going up dramatically. Um, but you can't you can't buy based on that knowledge anymore. And so it is, what do you actually yield? What is the yield on that property? And you're paying more costs with interest costs and other things. And uh, what's the what's the hope long term growth as a as a more of a bonus as opposed to an expectation? So definitely a mindset change for investors, but also for homeowners as well. You know, you, you you've got to know that you, you can afford this property over the long term, and don't expect that value growth to be there instantly. Um, and that could change some decisions in the market too. So yeah, great great point to finish on. This has been the Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. New Zealand Funds Management Limited is the issuer of the NZ Funds KiwiSaver Scheme, the NZ Funds Managed Superannuation Service, the NZ Funds Advised Portfolio Service, the NZ Funds Wealth Builder, and NZ Funds Income Generator. A product disclosure statement for each is available at nzfunds.co.nz. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future returns.